welcome. My name is Sue Langley and welcome to another of our Learn With Sue Walk and Talk podcasts. And as you know, we are often joined by experts and we had a fabulous expert in conversation for our members recently with Nick Marks. And here you get to hear the first little chunk of that conversation. And Nick Marks, if you're not familiar, is he describes himself as a statistician. And yet, as you'll hear, so much more than that with regard to being an independent policy advisor, statistician, author, speaker, um, has worked on the Happy Planet Index, has uh, was part of the team creating the five ways of well-being that we're uh, very familiar with often now um, and has worked also on things like the five ways of happiness at work. So lots of exciting things come up in this conversation. So join me now for the first part of our conversation with the wonderful Nick Marks. Okay, welcome, welcome. We'll see. Welcome, Rod. Good to have you on live. We'll see how many people join us on a Thursday evening here. Welcome, Kath. It's afternoon for you. Um, so for those of you joining live, welcome. You're used to this format. Um, you are welcome to send us a little message in, um, in chat. Um, at any point in time, but please feel free to send us a message now. And um, it's always like uh, me having friends on because these are the people that I get to connect with quite regularly. So welcome, Lynn. Good to have you on. And for those of you listening to the recording, uh, it is great that you'll be listening and hopefully having an inspiring and entertaining conversation. <laughs> All right, so please feel free to send us a little message if you're on live. Um, and as I say, then I know that the chat's working, which is really good. But we will kick off. So, uh, Nick, welcome. I am joined by the fabulous Nick Marks. And I was just saying that I feel I've known you, Nick, for a long time, but only because I have known your work for a long time. I've been talking about your work. Uh, we use the five ways of well-being in our CERT 4 of um, well-being science. So um, I feel like I know you, but I know we've only actually met for literally a fleeting few seconds. So welcome, Nick Marks, because I think what you do is really special. So thank you for being here. Thanks. Thanks very much. Um, I've been very privileged to like follow an idea for 20 years and uh, be able to work. It's <laughs> lovely. Well, there's many people who are listening to this who may well have heard of your work. And I just mentioned the five ways of well-being, and that's certainly one small aspect of some of the many things that you've been exploring in this space. So I often ask people when we start is, how do you sort of identify yourself? How do you define yourself as a person? I don't want to put you in a box, but I'll let you put yourself in your own boxes. Uh, I'm a I guess first and foremost, I'm a statistician, uh, so I'm a numbers guy. I, I was the really annoying guy at school who was really good at maths without really trying. And so, you know, that's my sort of natural uh, habitat numbers. Um, but my my mother was a psychotherapist, a family therapist. And so I trained as a therapist when I was young. And I, in the end, I sort of I sort of meshed together these all mashed together, <laughs> smashed together these two two things are really a sort of, you know, people skills and number skills and so over my I, I call it a career but it does feel like a random walk in lots of ways you know I I started you know doing stats projects in the 90s and then I ended up working at a think tank in London you know they sort of challenged me to come and work with them on on well-being um it was a new word in British politics in 2000 and um and the brief to me when I when I started work at the economics foundation was uh well-being's coming onto the policy agenda. Let's drive some meaning under it. 
<laughs> that was literally my brief. And and I I thought, well, I, I said to them, well, what I would like to do would be create measures of well-being because I think that's what would help it um, settle into policy more. And then that's what we really did for over a decade there. Um, the think tank, which, yes, the Five Ways to Wellbeing was a project we did for the UK government on what's the equivalent of five fruit and vegetables a day, but if you're well-being, that was the brief there. Um, and then... Uh, lots of measurement projects and then um, I did my TED talk in 2010 and then after that I decided to focus on work and the reason I decided to focus on work was we all spend so much time there mm. so you know it's a big big chunk of our life and it's pretty much a sort of you know it's a universal experience we all have an experience of work and so if you could think about how you can be happy at work of course all of those learnings are applicable in our whole lives as well uh, you know, but the thing about work, which is great, is that we measure stuff at work so well. So we can immediately see the, the what, how, how mood, feelings, emotions influence behaviors, outcomes. Yeah. And, 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 as, and the brilliant thing is also is that there is an alignment between the individual and the organizational um, needs, you know, because when we feel good, we do good work. You know, we miserable, we do miserable work. So it's, it's a really <laughs> interesting space. Yeah, yeah. Which is funny because I often say that every individual has the ability to be a good employee or a not good employee, depending on how they're feeling. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So I want to come back to. There's many things you've just mentioned in that sort of opening few sentences that I want to sort of pick up on. I'm just going to go back, if I may, to um, yeah. the UK government. Um, The UK government have done some interesting things um, around measuring well-being and sometimes it's maybe not as appreciated and I appreciate there are some strange things going on as an outsider in the UK at the moment. Uh, Bearing in mind I grew up there and then I see what's happening at the moment. Um, But if you think about the, the measurement The UK seemed to be a little bit ahead of the curve um, with Lord Richard Layard and his view. I've spoken to Lord Gus O'Donnell and some of the stuff that's still going on with the measurements of well-being and the reports that are going out around well-being. What's your thoughts and your feelings about um, why that started, how it started and what's been the impact? Um. It started so so there were several points it was starting. So in 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 2000, there was a local government act in the UK, which gave every local government the power of well-being. Now, that sounds very dramatic, but actually in government speak, a power is less than a duty. A duty means you must do it. A power means you can do it. And it came in and basically it was very broad and it said it was, you know, that they had the the power and, and it was basically a legis- piece of legislation because everything that you have to do in government, you have to have a law, a legislation in which enables you to do that. And, and the, the power of well-being was supposed to be a general power to do good in your community, in your geographical space. And so it was, it was a really good bit of legislation, but nobody really knew what it meant. <laughs> and that's, that's, that's kind of why they said to me when I, when I started, I was working in and out of this think tank, just some on some other projects, but they, they said, why don't you come and what became setting up the center for well-being though we didn't know that's what it was going to be when i started and um it, it, that was the, the the government act they wanted me to focus on in, in what they could do and so there, there was that and i don't know the history of why that piece of legislation came but then at the same time so we got we're talking the early 2000s now we yeah we got lord richard layard who wrote his book on happiness but before he wrote his book on happiness he he um, was doing work around us. And, and the thing with Richard is you have to realize that he's a lord not by inheritance. He's a lord for his work in economics on labor markets. He's a very eminent mm. 
professor mm -hmm. of, of economics. So for this very eminent professor of economics, who's a lovely man, by the way, uh, he 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 caused some ripples because he's in the House of Lords. He's basically pushing on 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 mental health and happiness, and that government's not doing enough. And he's absolutely right about that. And he still does. You know, it's brilliant. He still does it now. He's I don't know mid eighties, and mm -hmm. he he he. He's still passionate about it. It's his legacy, actually. I mean, he actually doesn't have biological children. So I sometimes think this is where he's focused his energy. But he's he's such a good hearted man. So um, so he really started to push on, on it. We also had uh, so we're talking uh, in those years, we're talking the Tony Blair government. Uh, and in uh, Tony Blair set up a internal think tank within number 10 and um and there was someone there called David Halpin, who's still in government now. He now leads the nut. You know him. He still he loves the, the behavioral, behavioral insights uh, group. Uh, and and David, I, again, I I don't know why, but he started to say that government should think about measuring life satisfaction. And then you had us in a very radical think tank, uh, really. We, you know, the th think tank I was in was around sustainability and social justice. And... I, I sat in a corner for a year with slightly long hair talking about well-being and they all thought I was mad. But of course, <laughs> when we started to publish and it got so much traction, they started to understand that actually you could think about uh, sustainability as well-being through time. You could think about social justice as well-being across, um, uh, you know, across section of society. So you could start putting a well-being lens on topics that they were very passionate about. And so, you know, and ultimately, if you get successful people, they they swarm around you a bit more so in the end we, we form this thing but it, you know I, I i had no expectation it was going to be successful i was just doing something i was interested in and mm. you know it started off as kind of a friday job for me volunteering one day a week and it just emerged mm. it, it just brilliant so um and we were we were operating more at the officer level so you know you had lord richard Laird operating operating in the sort of in the houses of parliament you had you had David Halpen operating within government and his team. And then you had us from outside and we could push a more radical agenda about it because obviously, you know. And so I, I think there was this sort of kind of three pronged attack, you know, and um, and, you know, Gus O'Donnell was sort of in the in in those two groups. He was, you know, uh, and he, he, he's he been a very passionate supporter of it, as has lots of other people. And, mm -hmm. and and the reason I think that some people get very passionate about it is you're talking about the stuff of life, aren't you, when you're talking about well-being mm -hmm. and happiness. And, and government's so dry and economics is so dry. So I think it was the right conditions for that. You know, it's sort of quite in, you know, and, you know, in the UK in some ways can often be a little ahead of the game. But I will say this, you know, I ran this team in a think tank and we had a goal that the Welsh Assembly would make a measure of well-being. That was our goal, you know, or the Scottish government. right? And we it took us totally by surprise when David Cameron in government then actually committed to doing it nationally. I mean, we were delighted, but it was we hadn't expected it to move that quick. But Cameron was a big fan of well-being. Mm. This is pre-Brexit days. <laughs> and um, you know, and he, he he genuinely made it one of his key policies, well-being, big society. And um and I think he 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 passionately believed in it actually, mm. but then he got swept away with other events. So so I think there was a, there was a lot of a lot of stuff around it um and and in the uk yeah created the first national set of indicators mm -hmm. of well-being and they they're still collected they're collected as part of the household panel survey the labor force survey and 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 we collect questions there. i mean i'm not the biggest fan of the questions that they use but um but it's very good that we have them i was going to say because it's more than many 
countries actually do. It's many more than many governments, including some very close to home, uh, do. So uh, at least you've got some statistics coming through. Yeah, yeah. And, and thinking Absolutely. about that, you just mentioned the sustainability aspect. And I know yeah. um, one of the things you talked about in your TED talk and you uh, played a big part in was the Happy Planet Index. And many yeah. of the people listening to this, they probably will have seen the World Happiness Report that comes out every year that usually has Finland as number one and usually yeah. most Scandinavian countries is two, three, four, five, six. Um, but the Happy Planet Index, I really love this. And um, I love it because completely different countries come out as number one. Um, yeah. And although it's called the Happy Planet Index, I love that you've combined the, the planet, the sustainability, um, can you tell everybody a little bit more about that? Because I think the way you mathematically model this is kind of cool. <laughs> Thank you. Um, well, okay, so in the early 2000s, so my I came into well-being and happiness from a sustainability angle mm. you know, in the 90s. That was my statistical work was doing big, far too complex indicators of sustainable welfare. And... Um, and I was looking for simplicity because I, when you do complex indicators, what happens is that people don't believe the result. They get underneath the bonnet and they want to look at all the assumptions and unpick them, which is actually fair enough uh, because because some of the assumptions are, are make a huge difference to how things come. So um, I wanted something that was a little less easy to rebuff. And so... Um, I came up with this idea that so so at the time in the early 2000s so maybe some of your listeners have heard of Ruud Veenhoven who um is a is a Dutch um social psychologist sociologist and he came up with the idea of happy life years and the idea was to have um instead of life expectancy you have um a quality adjusted life expectancy so they do it there's lots of these indicators there's things like disability adjusted life years there's health adjusted life years um, and the idea is like it's not only quantity of life it's quality and his measure was quality. So he basically effectively multiplied happiness by life expectancy and created happy life years. And I was in a talk with Rude giving uh, giving a talk and he was basically making the case that life's never been so good. He went sort of drew the sort of speculative thing back to sort of ancient humans, you know, when they live short lives, don't really know about the happiness and, and life expectancy increasing and people becoming happier. And he said, basically, <clears throat> we never had it so good, which is which is kind of fine. But I turned to my my friend um a norwegian psychologist called your viticero and i said yo i said um the thing is we're, we're destroying the planet as we're doing mm. this and so i nearly had the idea that day and then about a year later a year later uh at new economics foundation they we wanted to do a, a report on environment and well-being and we wanted some statistics to hang the report on because we knew statistics were good with the media and we hadn't got a budget to like do a new survey. So they said to me, um, you know, can you create something? And, and anyway, I came up with the idea that actually we should think of it from an economic perspective, which is efficiency, which is the outcome is happy long lives. And the cost is how much planet we use to get there. Mm. And and that requires something which is very uh, unusual and indeed frowned upon by hardcore statisticians, which is that I divided one set of statistics by the other. So I said, here's the outcome. Here's the here's the ecological footprint of using it. Happy Planet is going to be how much well-being do we get for our resources? And I still stand by that metric in that I, you know, I think we can think about how we improve the measurement of good lives. We can think about how we improve the measurement of of, um, of resource use. Um, however, the idea that we should think about how 
effective societies are at creating good lives that don't cost the earth mm. is something mm. I stand by. And and then you, what happened was I actually had this idea walking my dog, and I was at the top of a hill, and I and I'm not a runner, but I pretty much ran down the hill back to my laptop to basically work out if I had any stats to show this once I'd had the idea I could divide the two and I and within two hours I got some data together and made a spreadsheet and done the very first draft of it and it and it showed Latin America doing really well and I thought mm. now that's interesting that's interesting because that's a that's not the expected role model in this thing because we think of as you say Scandinavia but um and I so so it does create a different set of results and it's interesting because I do think that is still the goal of humanity is to create good lives that don't cost the earth. I think that's what we're going to struggle with over the next 50 years. And, and we can think about reducing environmental impact, and people do. But if we don't think about our lifestyles and the way that we live, we're not going to really tackle it. Mm. And so and that's things, of... Yeah, I found quite shocking because I think Costa Rica sort of came out as like number one. Yep. Um, and I think the last time I looked at it, which was maybe 2021 or something, it was... Uh, U- US was 122nd or something on the list and Australia was not doing very well at 80 something and um, to your point is we can create more well-being we can create longer lives but if we don't have a planet to live on then it's kind of a moot point yeah and and I mean and the thing is that of course we're adaptable and resourceful creatures and there will be adaptation but the cost of climate change is going to fall on the poor you know, inevitably. Uh, and and it depends how, how large the costs get, really, doesn't it? Um, you know, I mean, we're, we're obviously heading beyond two degrees of climate change. And um, I mean, you know, I'll be dead. So, you know, but, um, you know, we're just going to see more and more disruption. Of course, Australia's had it terrible, you know, with, you know, and 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 um, so there are big there are big challenges ahead. And I, I, I think that the fear is that we have to give up our lifestyles. And that's understandable that people are frightened of that Mm. and actually i think our lives could be calmer Mm. uh, as well as you know i think they you know you you know if we think about the big things that you know impacting climate you know they they're overconsumption um unnecessary things well you know i think we all feel a bit guilty for throwing away so much stuff and plastic and stuff like that and it's not it's not good for us and and travel which and the travel is a really difficult one but but local, we actually experience our well-being very locally. It's in our families. It's in the things that we do. And I, I always say when I go around the UK, you don't need to fly to Eastern Europe to get drunk. And I'm speaking <laughs> to you. You can do that in Manchester. You know, it's like I'm not saying that you should have a good time. You just don't need, you know, you you you. It's the relationships you build on those trips that are the most important thing. You don't even notice the local country you go. I mean, I'm taking it's an exaggeration, but you know, but it's 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 you know, we can have and just think about it. You know, a life full of more music. You know, more you know, more dance, more 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 lovely community time. Obviously, there might be some challenges. Relationships are. Are both beautiful and the worst thing ever you know is that <laughs> I mean, for nearly every single one of us our most painful thing in life has been a relationship and so they're, they're not easy but of course they're really rewarding and so you know it, it we have a more relational world more care and and people and, and I, I i know that the shiny things you know the shiny material things are attractive but that's partly because advertising sells at us all the time and whatever like that 
you know, actually, you know, you look at the face of an older person who's lived a happy life and their face is beautiful. And I think that actually many of us would really like to live beautiful relational lives. Um, mm. It's just we don't know how to. We haven't got that option, really, because everything is so fast paced. So I think a sustainable future would be happier. Mm. But I'm obviously an outlier with that thought. <laughs> Oh, no, you're definitely not. And it's funny because we were actually having this conversation. I just kicked off a diploma of positive psychology and well-being yesterday. And uh, we were having that conversation today about the importance of the the little things that sometimes we want the bright, shiny, woohoo, make me happy. But actually, it's sometimes the smaller things like a conversation with somebody. And, and I love your point about in Australia, yeah, we can fly to Bali and get drunk or we can get drunk in our backyard, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe not get drunk at all. Um, yeah, okay, but I just... <laughs> no, it's a great yeah. point. So yeah. thinking about that, um, the, the five ways of well-being became a, a kind of a global thing. So although it was developed in your economics foundation and you, you spent a lot of time on that, um, it's very much global. I know there's lots of organizations here in Australia that use it. Um, we talk about it in our new CERT 4 program. How do you feel that the those five ways of well-being can help somebody from a really practical level? They're, they're rules of thumb. They're heuristic. They're, they are clues invitations about what you can do you know it's why, why we met i think one of the reasons they've been successful is we we message them very in a very invitational way mm-hmm. um and in, you're trying to play with being slightly prescriptive saying these are the things you should do but actually you you know that the space of well-being is facilitative it's 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 about you know it's not telling people what to do it's like inviting them so we worked very hard on the messaging and really it's a messaging project was the five ways to well-being you know it was a you know i pitched it as an idea to this branch of government called foresight literally by picking up a piece of fruit and saying you know we need the equivalent of five fruit and vegetables but for well-being and he looked at me and he goes we do and this was a short-term project and he said actually all my budget's closed at the end of this week and i've still got ten thousand pounds in a pot so if you can give me a project for less than ten thousand pounds to do that you can have it so he on thursday he got one for nine thousand six hundred <laughs> and, and, and and basically we wanted to do the project um i i you know it was it was and it was that cheap as a project but it was an exercise literally of you know we understood the literature well but it was how could you message it in a friendly way and and uh and of course, government likes to tell people what not to do, not to smoke, not to do this. Not to, it's very bad at actually facilitating it. So I think it, when it hit the launch of it, uh, we it, we really annoyed all the academics that worked on this big report because it was a huge tome. And then there was a little postcards. And of course, what did the media pick up on? But the postcards are the five ways to well-being. But, you know, as I tried to say to them, this is, this is your work. It's just packaged in a different way, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and the great thing about it was that because we did it for the Government Office of Science, we didn't own the copyright to it. It's the crown is what you call it in the UK. And so it just it just had its own life. Just people mm-hmm. picked up. On it. And, it, and I think it was a relief to lots of people working in in community, in, in public health, in mental health. But here was something which was government. So they could just say, this is what kind of the government say. And yet it was friendly and easy to use. And of course, mm. it's adaptable, you know, in that, you know, connect, be active, take notice, keep learning and give. You can interpret those in many ways. So you can be active in many ways. And we were careful to like, you know, because the reality is, is, you know, when it comes to something like exercise and well-being, it's a complex relationship. But, but you know, it, it, a, a third of the UK hardly move at all. 
Mm. You know, I mean, they hardly get off of the sofa. They get out and into, you know, and it's like extraordinary. When I looked at the data, it made me feel less bad about being chubby and not doing so much exercise. And <laughs> I sat in the middle third. Yeah, I sat in the middle. I wasn't in the top third. But actually exercise at the, at the, at the right, at, at the end where people do a lot is often related also with anxiety. Uh, and so, you know, so that actually like everything in psychology, it's an optimization thing. But, you know, and also personalities in there. I'm never going to be a fast moving creature. But, you know, I like to walk and swim, you know, so yeah, I can find the things that I enjoy. And I think that's 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 the thing. And sort of so instead, instead of saying five sessions of 30 minutes of whatever, you know, we're just saying be active, do things, try, try. And mm. and I think that's why it was so popular. Yeah. So thinking about those five ways of well-being, and as you said, connect, keep learning, be active, take notice, give are our five ways. How is that uh, different or is it not from five ways of well-being from a workplace perspective? Uh, yeah, you see, I slightly, well, to a very small audience, I've, I've muddled the things by using, by basically picking up on the idea that the success of the five ways to well-being, which was to create things in a in a style which is invitational short list you know is in two long lists people don't remember mm -hmm. so um and so when i came to work on work which is this is like five six years after the, the, the so the five, original five ways came out in 2008 and in about 2014 i created them for work and the reason was that i mean partly people were starting to use the original five ways in work and 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 the, the briefs we had from government was they had to pitch to individuals with the five ways that was a part of the brief it could not be saying government needs to change this communities needed what people could do themselves so you're empowering the individual at work it's a different situation because you're in a team you're in a you're in a you're in a system and um and systems shape us a lot you know i think we we all tend to overestimate our own free will and underestimate how much systems around us shape our behavior we do have we do have agency but we're very shaped by the choices we're offered and by the context we're in. So when I was working with organizations, I was working with systems. And I'm actually, you know, one of the reasons I'm not a therapist is I like working with systems rather than individuals. I do love individuals and working with them, but you kind of feel you're helping one person and they're putting them back into a system which isn't healthy. So how much are you helping them? And so if you can work on the system, you can affect more people. It's why I worked in policy. And organization, and so organizations are systems. So how do you create a great culture, a great system for people that they can thrive and they can thrive naturally? And, and you know, I'm sure all of your listeners and you and me are, you know, old enough that we've had good and bad experiences at work. And and the good ones are much nicer and they're, and they're to do with working with people that we like on projects that we really, you know, enjoy, we've treated with respect. They, they're the same sort of things, you know, that are going on that are, that are really good, you know. I think Tolstoy started War and Peace started with um, no, maybe it's Anna Karenina, but, but all happy families are similar, but unhappiness is, is a different. I really right. mangled that. But I basically think that all happy work situations are really pretty similar. Uh, mm. And the unhappy ones can take on a wide variety of why they're unhappy. So, um, you know, and I, I think it's, so my work is really around how do you help teams and organizations create, good environments for people to thrive mm. well that's probably then a good theme for us to pick up on because anybody listening whether they're live or whether they're listening to the recording um they're like you say we all uh, have different workplace experience whether it's current whether it's past etc 
Um, what sort of things do you do now to really help organizations create that systems informed positive psychology, positive workplace approach? Yeah, so I'm 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 the measurement guy. And and I um I mean, I don't know whether this is a brilliant business strategy, but this is what we do, <laughs> which is that we we just put in the measurement systems for organizations. So a bit like you have an accounting package, effectively we are your happiness measurement package, right? But of course we do a bit more than that. But I call the process uh starts with measurement. But the the whole the problem that we encounter with clients is that they're quite happy to measure, they're they're less engaged to act on the results so you know so measurement sort of click ticks a box so we're we're, we're measuring and we're, we're doing it but how do you actually get into people's work daily weekly work lives that you can actually make a difference and so and so we, we do something quite radical which is we, we we have a weekly measurement tool which is basically on a friday we ask people how did you feel at work this week and 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 the reason i'm very keen on weekly measure is that we all have good and bad weeks it goes up and down it would be probably dysfunctional to be happy all of the time because things change in the environment and we need to respond to them and and in many ways happiness is a is an internal good bad signal you know when things are going well we feel good and when things are feel aren't we don't feel good and that's a signal to change you know Mm -hmm. that's a that's a yes the whole evolutionary purpose of feelings is and it's sometimes called affect as information, but, you know, feeling as information. I mean, I, I take that as feelings as data. I'm a statistician, you know, so it's data for us to do. And, and can we put a number on that? What well, if we can put a simple number on that? You know, if we ask people every week on a scale of one to five, how happy are you? Good weeks, they go four, five and OK weeks, they go three and terrible ones, they go one, two. And 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 that's very linked to the quality of their work on a weekly basis so if the team leader can look at those results every week and talk with their teams about what went well for you this week what didn't so into friction and flow you know in the what what stopped you doing a good job this week what's you know what you've done how can we amplify that so in a in a positive psychology or appreciative inquiry way like how can we how can we notice what's going well and build on it? That's a really important thing that businesses can be really bad at. They can just go, good job. Here's the next challenge, you know, rather than actually taking the time to think what's gone well, why it's gone well, and how you can do more of that. And um, and then they can also be really bad at just avoiding bad things in that, you know, team leaders are humans and they don't want to look at the rubbish and the shit. So they'd much rather just sort of kind of walk past it, which is very understandable, but again, counter, counter, you know, productive. So how do you help team leaders be braver so that they can have conversations each week? Uh, how do you help people? So, so that's what our sort of system is about. So we ask every week, yeah, how happy were you, but ask you share a success, mm-hmm. thank a colleague, actually send little notes to them you know our system allows people to send notes say thank you for doing this you know um and then if you've got anything you're stuck on you're frustrated or mm. ideas to improve so we so it's very simple we call it was call ourselves friday pulse because on friday we take the pulse of the business mm. but uh but um uh but we feed that back on a monday morning as like a slide deck to team leaders that they can sort of open the slide deck a bit like one of those i don't know if you use those food boxes that come with recipes and menus in them so it's one called hello fresh oh, I know what you mean. I don't, but yeah. yeah well i i use one in the uk it's called mindful chef it's probably not in australia but it's much healthier and I, i'm you know 
I, I, I struggle to eat healthily. So I, this really helps me do it because I just open the box and, you know, I come out of work at six o'clock, open a box and there is the, is all the ingredients and the recipe. And I like the chopping and the cooking and I like the eating. I don't like the shopping and the planning. So it gets <laughs> rid of the shopping and the planning for me. Yeah. And also the planning is, is done for me. Like, you know, as I said earlier, we're, we're, we're more shaped by our environments than we think. Mm. And if I go into a supermarket, I start thinking of all the, what I think of as tasty things, but they're fatty, they're whatever, you know, because I've still got that childhood need <laughs> there. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's pathetic, but it's what it is. Whereas if I get a box <laughs> of healthy stuff, I'm very happy. And I actually, I prefer, I mean, the really bizarre thing is what I want is not necessarily what I like. I mean, this is the whole, the split that all sorts of people talk about, that the, the dopamine drive system as opposed to, but actually I like the healthier food better, but I would tend to choose the unhealthy one, which is just messed up, but it's just how I, I am. And like most of us are actually. So if I can be nudged to do the good stuff, it's better for me. And for team leaders, I think it's the same that they, they're avoiding these conversations because they don't know how to have them. They haven't had the training. You know, you, you obviously work in a training field, but most businesses don't train their team leaders. And I mean, I, it's, it's shocking. It's something like 83% of team leaders had no training last year at all. Mm. So only mm. 17% in the UK had any training and actually most of that training tends to be about health and safety tends to be about technical things very little is on how do you have good conversations with people how can you be a coaching team leader a coaching style rather than prescriptive so be facilitative help them build on their strengths these are essential skills these people skills they actually are they're very tied to productivity so there's there's something going on in businesses which is very short term very avoidant and I think that thinking about team happiness and really investing in that is the way to break that deadlock. Thank you so much for listening to that first part of our conversation with Nick. He really had some wonderful, insightful things to say, uh, plus being just so nice and normal and fun along the way. Uh, for more of this interesting conversation and for other expert in conversation sessions, all available to you on the recordings of our portal of learnwithsue.com.au. Uh, please consider becoming a member where you get access to all sorts of things, including our neuroscience of happiness course, our microbiome course, and many other exciting conversations that you can listen to whenever you like. If not, I will see you back for the next Learn With Sue Walk and Talk podcast next week. Enjoy more of the conversation and wishing you to be the best you can be. Bye.